Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusts in thee. Before we begin our study, let's go to the Lord in prayer. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give everybody the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we are so grateful to be able to come together this evening, just grateful for the grace that we benefit from in our lives, the grace that you have given us in salvation, the grace that you have given us in terms of our spiritual life, the grace that you have given us that we are in this country and this nation where we have the freedoms that we do to assemble, to proclaim your word, to study your word, to teach your word. Father, we pray that as we gather together this evening that this will be, again, not just another opportunity that we have, but that it will be a time when we can put aside all the cares and distractions of the day, the day past or the day to come, and focus our attention upon your word, being reminded of all that you have done for us in our salvation, that we might not take this for granted, but that we might understand all that you have provided for us, and that on the basis of these riches that we have in Christ, that we can live a life that is uh, based on the supernatural, spiritual provision that you have given us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We are studying in Romans, uh, specifically beginning the fourth, uh, or excuse me, fifth chapter. I mistyped that earlier. The fifth chapter, as we get into the topic related to peace and reconciliation. That should read... Uh, Romans 5, 1 and 2, and, but we'll be spending most of our time, uh, this evening in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 12 through 29. Having gone through his discussion of the need for justification and describing that justification could not possibly be on the basis of any kind of works or moral obedience to the Mosaic law, the Apostle Paul now moves from his explanation of justification in chapter 4 to his explanation of the benefits of justification in chapter 5. And as he goes through the benefits and the consequences of justification this chapter, he's really setting us up for understanding the implications of justification for the spiritual life, which is then the focus of Romans 6, 7, and 8. He brings us to a conclusion to focus on the uh, primary benefit of justification in 5.1, writing, therefore, because we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Having peace with God is a result of 
justification. And it's important for us to understand that peace with God is in contrast to the enmity that every person, every human being has with God because they are born in a state of enmity and hostility toward God. We find this word enmity mentioned in, for example, in verse um, uh, verse 8, God, or the concept there, verse 8, God demonstrates his love toward us in that while we were yet still sinners or in a state of hostility toward God, uh, Christ died for us. And then he expands on that in verse 10, for if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more because we have been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And so the contrast between with peace is this position of enmity or hostility uh, toward God. Now, last time I talked about the fact that this word peace it has a lot of different dimensions to it. It has the idea in some places of an absence of physical conflict. That is how the, the Hebrew word shalom, that word group, is used uh, many, many times in the Old Testament in terms of, of warfare, the lack of, of warfare, the lack of physical conf- conflict or the opposite of physical conflict. It's also used to describe the absence of conflict now between Jew and Gentile. This is what we'll see in our study in Ephesians 2, 12 through 29. It's used also in the, in the um, uh, realm of mental attitude to describe the absence of mental conflict. No worry, anxiety, uh, fear, because our focus has been stabilized by uh, uh, focus on God. And then it's also used to relate to the absence of just personal conflict between one person and another. All of these are secondary areas of conflict that are the consequence of the fact that every human being is born spiritually dead, hostile to God, and all of the other aspects of tension that we have in life and conflict that we have in life are the result of sin, Ultimately, everything gets traced back to a spiritual cause. We do not live in a closed universe, despite the way modern science addresses uh, uh, the creation. They operate on a closed model as if there is no input from an external uh, creator, as if there's no input from God and that God does not exist. As a result, many of their conclusions are flawed because they don't understand that, that the universe is really open. It is open to the control and direction uh, direction of God. And so uh, all causes ultimately go back to spiritual causes and the problem of sin that exists between God and man in one way or, or another. So I pointed out last time that in Romans 5.1, uh, there are a couple of English translations I've seen that uh, go with a uh, a reading of the Greek text that uh, we should have peace with God or let us enjoy peace with God. And this, even though this, in, this reading has some, um, uh, a lot of support in some very old manuscripts, it, it, there are equally old manuscripts that uh, handle this word 
we have as a indicative mood rather than a subjunctive mood. And once again, this gets into the area I was discussing in the announcements of textual criticism and understanding how uh, variations occur uh, with, within the text. When I was in Kiev, uh, one of the things I enjoy doing when I go over there uh, every year is trying to catch up on, e- on a number of different things that I just normally don't get time to get to every day, uh, one of which is watching uh, various DVDs that have come out, either through one of the creation organizations or through various other, other organizations. And there was a debate that occurred in October of this year at SMU, sponsored by um, a, an organization that uh, Dan Wallace, who I mentioned earlier, Professor Dallas Seminary, uh, heads up that deals with recovering uh, uh, manuscript, ancient manuscripts related to, to the scripture. And he debated a scholar by the name of Bart Ehrman. Now, I would suggest that most people here have never heard the name Bart Ehrman before unless you pay attention to the New York Times uh, top ten bestseller list. And as he, the man who introduced the, uh, the two uh, uh, debaters said that for a New Testament scholar to have a book in the New York Times bestseller list shows that signs and wonders still occur. But Satan always promotes his own. And we live in the devil's world, so we can always expect that those who are hostile or antagonistic to the scriptures are always going to find a platform in the world today. And even though most of us have never heard the name of Bart Ehrman, and I've run into it occasionally here or there, and when I was doing work uh, a number of years ago on the uh, Da Vinci Code, uh, that was one of the names that cropped up. If you can remember back in the 90s, there was this group of scholars that were called the, the uh, Jesus Seminar. And they got together and met uh, every few years, and they were going through the Gospels and deciding on a scale of one to five. They gave it, they color-coded uh, each of the five, they had five different colors, and they would decide something that, yes, Jesus definitely said this. Uh, Jesus probably did, but we're not sure. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. He probably didn't say this, but we're not sure, or he definitely didn't say this. So they color-coded every uh, statement in Scripture according to their <clears throat> arrogant disbelief. And Ehrman was part of that, uh, was part of that group. He has a tremendous uh, pedigree. He was raised as an evangelical fundamentalist. He uh, went to uh, good good schools in his background. He got his Ph.D. studying uh, text, textual uh, matters under Bruce Metzger, who was probably the foremost te- textual critic uh, in in the world, one of the top five probably um, until his death, which I think was either in the uh, late 90s or early 2000s. And so he has, and, and he co-authored uh, a couple of revisions of Metzger's uh, classic work on the text of the New Testament, uh, his fourth edition, and some other things. And he had a more conservative view of the text at one time. He still does if you read between the lines and listen and get past his probabilities and the way he forms his titles and questions are very uh, inflammatory and they are designed to, to, you know, cause people to have a, a critical view and a disrespect for the text. And he's written a couple of popular books, 
And he'll, they'll come out with titles like How the uh, Church Fathers Changed the Words of Jesus. And so people read this or they just read the titles, and when you push him into a corner, he will admit that we're probably having 99% accurate text. But he says we, we don't, you know, his basic claim is that we ultimately don't know because the earliest manuscripts that we have go back to uh, within a, about 100, and, uh, 100 to 150 years, I mean, of whole manuscripts. Uh, there are some partial ones that go back into the early second century, but there's a lot of innuendo. There's a lot of uh, a lot of times that he overstates his case, and, but he has a great presentation. He has a winsome personality, and he just is able to communicate his uh, his uh, lies and half truths in a way that um, that if you're looking for reasons to disbelieve the Scripture, disbelieve the New Testament, to think that, well, all of this was just kind of cobbled together by somebody later, then, then you're going to think that's, that's uh, he, he's your man, and you're going to uh, latch on to him because he'll give you a justification for your, uh, for your unbelief. The thing is, because of his popularity, I would say there's about five or six points that he makes over and over again. Somebody once said repetition is the first five uh, principles of teaching. And um, he certainly does that again and again and again. And what impressed me was I was listening to this debate between Dan Wallace and Bart Ehrman on do we have an accurate uh, text of the, or an accurate uh, copy of the original text of the New Testament. Um, As I listened to him, I realized that that I've heard all these objections. Whenever I have had the opportunity to witness to somebody who's a little bit knowledgeable and who maybe watches the History Channel or the Discovery Channel or something like that, they never heard of Bart Ehrman, but they're hearing his conclusions and his points. They are out there uh, and have been out there, and so the uh, average person that you listen to is going to raise these objections. And you're going to sit there going, hmm, uh, hmm, uh, gee, I never heard that before. Let me see. Maybe my pastor knows the answer. So uh, it's important to understand these things because we have to give an answer for the hope that is in us. So somebody says, well, you know, you really can't trust the Bible. Why do you trust the Bible? And I've been asked this, I don't know, a dozen times in the last year. Why do you think that we have any kind of an accurate view of the Scripture? Well, you can sit there and say, well, my pastor says so, or you can learn a couple of basic facts and point people in the right direction. None of us are going to give a, be able to give a dissertation on the point uh, right on the spot. But this is one example, because when people talk about how the New Testament has so many different changes, so many different variations, we have uh, over probably over 5,000 uh, different uh, manuscripts uh, partial or complete of the New Testament. Plus, in terms of the early church fathers, we have literally tens of thousands of individual quotations of Scripture verses. The trouble is with a quotation, uh, you don't know whether they're looking at a that the Scripture and writing it down, uh, copying it specifically, or if they are uh, just going from memory or paraphrase. But nevertheless, we have that as some kind of a guide uh, to go by. And we have, uh, we can look at all of this and compare all this information, and we can come to a pretty good confident level 
of what the original text was. Uh, Dan Wallace has done a, uh, over the years, has done a, a, a study or a little uh, uh, experiment in his classrooms where he will, he's made up the gospel according to Snoopy, and he reads that to everybody in a, in a large group. He'll have a, he'll talk to them and train them, and he'll get 50, 60 people in a room. He'll read it out loud, dictate it, and people will write it down, and then he does away with the original to see if they can reconstruct the original, how accurately they can reconstruct the original from untrained scribes. And uh, it's amazing that you can do that. And uh, yet the liberal critics say, no, 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 they couldn't do that. We can't, even though we've lost the original or the copies of the original, the copies of the copies of the original, we can't reconstruct the original. But that's just has been dis- disproven. But we, um, uh, 99.9% of the changes that we have in these in these manuscripts, as I said, we have over 5,000 manuscripts. We have over 300,000 um, differences. Now, people will bring that up. 300,000 differences. Yeah, that's because it's a difference between spelling here H-E-A-R or H-E-R-E or just uh, maybe spelling here H-E-A-R-E like the uh, – like um, – uh, older English or color, C-O-L-O-U-R, instead of C-O-L-O-R, the difference between the American spelling and the British spelling, 99.9% of the differences are like that. Uh, in fact, in um, in the Greek, if, if you wanted to make a statement about um, uh, Jesus loves Adam, there are over... 15 different ways you can write that in Greek and you're going to translate it the same way into English depending on where you put the article and how you and the word order in the Greek can can vary uh, a number of different ways and so that that doesn't mean that that we don't have certainty as to the original um, and and these are just just some little examples of that but but the word that we have here as I pointed out last time is the Greek uh uh, verb echo, E-C-H, and it's a long O, and the difference is between the subjunctive mood, which has an omega, and the indicative mood, which has an omicron, and it would sound the same if it were being dictated. So from the, from analysis of the, uh, of the context of Scripture, it should be translated as an indicative that we do have peace with God. Now then, it is through whom, that is Jesus Christ also, we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. So it's a present tense emphasis. We stand, uh, completed action, the present reality of our position uh, in Christ. It is this, this grace in which we, uh, we have access or approach to God. Now, So we look at this whole topic of, of peace. I want to go to an important parallel passage, which is in Ephesians 2, 11 and 12. So let's just turn over to Ephesians chapter 2, 11, uh, starting in verse 11, and work our way through down to, I said 29 earlier. I'm still jet lagged, and that hits me about this time. So just uh, pardon a few misstatements that may come out tonight. Okay, verse 11. In Hebrews 2.11, which peace is used uh, three times in this section. And so this is uh, an important discourse by Paul on peace and reconciliation. 
In verse 11, he begins by saying, Therefore, remember that you, that is you, Ephesian believers, he has already said earlier in chapter 2 that uh, they were reminding them that they were formerly dead in their trespasses and sins, but God, because of his, verse 4, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So, again, he's going back to their former state. He says, remember that you once Gentiles in the flesh. That means in terms of their physical heritage. They were not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, only Jews are, are Jews only if they can trace their lineage through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Abraham had other sons. He had Ishmael by Hagar. He had other sons by his uh, second wife, Keturah, who he married after Sarah died. But they are not the lineage for the Jews. The Jews are only through Abraham, then Isaac, the child of promise, and then um, Jacob. So they were formerly Gentiles in the flesh, and they're called the uh, uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision. And among the uh, elite religious Jewish groups of the first century or Second Temple Judaism, there was this ethnic hostility toward non-Jews. Anyone who's not Jewish is a Gentile, and they were not circumcised because circumcision was a sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And so the issue here really isn't the physical circumcision or lack of it because there were a few other ethnic groups that practiced circumcision, but it didn't have a spiritual uh, or a, a covenant connotation. And so the emphasis here is that because they are not related to the Abrahamic covenant, they are not worthy of anything. They, they were uh, less than the dirt on the bottom of your shoes. And so there is this contrast that we need to understand in this alienation that came as a result of the Mosaic law and the distinctiveness that God expected from the Jews in terms of their culture, in terms of their lifestyle, in terms of their uh, uh, national identity. They were to be set apart to God as a kingdom of priests. So the first thing that we note in terms of the contrast is this uh, disrespect or demeaning of the Gentiles by the uh, religious elite uh, Jews of the Second Temple period. Uh, this is see, also seen in passages that we've studied in Romans, Romans 2, 25 to 29, as well as uh, 3, 1 through 2, and 4.10 through 12, where Paul is dealing with this issue of circumcision, the claim that by simply being circumcised and properly related through circumcision to the uh, Mosaic law and the Abrahamic covenant was enough uh, for salvation. In Romans uh, 2.29, uh, Paul wrote, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, that the emphasis in the Old Testament wasn't upon physical outward circumcision, but was a spiritual circumcision. This was clearly seen in Deuteronomy 29 as well as uh, Deuteronomy 30. Uh, later in Re Romans 3.29, 
After Paul has his explanation on justification, he said, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, he is God of the Gentiles also, since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. So the emphasis that Paul has in Romans 2, 25 to 29, 3, 1 through 2, and 14 through 12, is that circumcision, physical circumcision, was a work of the law and was not a basis of salvation. Second point that he makes here in Ephesians 2, 12, is that the Gentiles were aliens, um, excuse me, were without Christ beginning of verse 12, that at that time you were without Christ. That is, they did not have Jesus Christ as Savior, but the emphasis here on Christ should be understood in terms of its uh, foundational meaning as Messiah. Uh, Christos in the Greek is a translation of the Hebrew noun Mashiach, meaning the anointed one, and he's talking at that time formerly is former former to the cross, as we'll see within the context. And so prior to the cross, there was not a messianic hope or messianic expectation among the Gentiles because they did not have the promises and the covenant. So they were separated from a messianic hope. This is also seen in Romans 5, 2 through 4, where there's an emphasis on the hope that we now have because of the peace that we have with Christ. Third thing that uh, Paul states in verse 12 is that Gentiles were alienated from citizenship in Israel. They were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel. They were not, therefore not part of the theocracy. The theocracy what meant the, um, the special uh, nation that God set up on the basis of the Mosaic law. And if you were not related to God through the Mosaic law, then there were certain temporal blessings that would not be available to Gentiles unless they uh, became a proselyte and converted to uh, Mosaic Judaism in the first or second temple period. It is, and then the fourth thing that Paul says here in verse 12 is that Gentiles were not party to the covenants of promise. Notice he says covenants plural of promise. He's not just talking about the Abrahamic covenant, but he is talking about uh, all of the covenants related to the Abrahamic covenant. Uh, This is stated also in Romans 9, 4 through 5, which states that it is to Israel belong the covenants of the promise. And Paul writes that even after, after the cross. So the Jewish people still are viewed as those who are party to the uh, covenants in the Old Testament. Now, this chart here is a chart related to the Old Testament promises, the covenants of promise, and they're the, that they're established in the Old Testament and when they will be fulfilled. And then this uh, timeline at the bottom is basically a timeline related to the history of Israel. All of the uh, sections prior to the cross relate to the the age of Israel, and specifically you have the two dispensations of the patriarchs 
and then Moses. You have the formation of this of the nation of Israel, then the uh, period of the theocracy in Joshua and Judges, the period of the monarchy covered in the books of the Kings as well as Chronicles, followed by the exile, then the restoration uh, following the Babylonian captivity. Now, the Abrahamic covenant is given by God to Abraham. It is a unilateral covenant, which means that God alone bound himself to the, to the uh, obligations of the covenant. Uh, in the ancient world, when two parties were going to come together and sign a contract, they would do so by, uh, the, in fact, li- the, the literal phrase in the Hebrew is to cut a covenant, and that grew out of the uh, reality that they would uh, have a sacrifice and they would cut the sacrificed animal or animals in half, so they've cut the covenant, so to speak, and they would lay each half on altars side by side, and then the two parties to the covenant would walk between the two halves of the of the sacrifice. And when God... Uh, made the covenant with Abraham, and they laid out this, Abraham laid out the sacrifices and split them into, laid them out. God caused a deep sleep to come upon Abraham so that God alone is symbolized by a, a smudge pot, uh, went through, and a torch went through the, between the two, uh, halves of the sacrifices, indicating that he alone was obligating himself to the terms of that covenant. So for that reason, we refer to it many times as an unconditional covenant, uh, which is a term that has a couple of ambiguities to it, uh, which is why I prefer describing that as a covenant of promise and a permanent covenant. And there were three elements to the Abrahamic covenant that we've studied many times in the past. It was a promise of a, a worldwide blessing, a promise of a specific piece of real estate, uh, the land that existed between the Euphrates and the uh, Great Sea, which was the Mediterranean Sea, and a seed, uh, and specifically that pointed to Jesus Christ, who would be a blessing to all people. Now, each of those elements, the land, the seed, and the blessing, were then expanded in subsequent covenants of promise. This is why uh, Paul uses a plural here in terms of the covenants of promise. He's referring to not only the Abrahamic covenant, but also the land covenant or real estate covenant, uh, which isn't fulfilled until the millennial kingdom, uh, the Davidic covenant, which focuses on the seed, that the seed comes through the line of David, and that ultimately is not fulfilled until Jesus Christ returns to establish the kingdom in the future, and when he establishes that kingdom, he will rule over Israel from his throne in Jerusalem, and then the new covenant, which has application to the church uh, in this dispensation, but ultimately is not fulfilled in, ter- in the terms that are stated in Jeremiah 31 until uh, the millennial kingdom. And so this is the what, what Paul is referring to here is that Gentiles were aliens or estranged from or separated from the commonwealth of Israel and the covenants of promise. They weren't partners in terms of these covenants. The covenants were between God and Israel, the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then fifth, uh, in verse 12, Paul goes on to say that the Gentiles had no hope 
and they had no hope because there was no future expectation in the Gentile uh, philosophies or religious systems. They had no future expectation with God, and they are also without God. This is the word atheoi, where we get our word atheist, but they are without God or godless in the world. So that describes the state of Gentiles up to the cross as a whole. And then in verse 13, Paul draws a contrast from the past, the former time, to the present time. And he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, a couple of things to note here. This change that takes place between being estranged or alienated from the covenants, the promises, the commonwealth of Israel, etc., and now being brought near is not because culture has changed. It's not due to a political shift. It's not due to some sort of uh, uh, enlightenment on the part of the Jews that now they're uh, no longer going to be arrogant towards the Gentiles. What makes the distinction is what happened at the cross. Another thing that we should observe here is that in the English we have the word now, but in Greek there are two different words for now. There is the word arti and there is the word nuni. Nuni is the word that we have uh, here. Now, in many places, those two words can virtually be used interchangeably But there are a number of places where, when they're used in the same context, arty has a more immediate sense, such as right now, uh, today or this moment, and nuni has the sense of now in this age or in this dispensation. Paul uses it that way in 1 Corinthians uh, 13.13 when he says, but now abide uh, faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. He used RT in the previous verse to emphasize the immediate period of the pre-canon apostolic age of the church, but then he talks about what continues throughout all of the church age, that is faith, hope, and love in contrast to the temporary revelatory gifts of knowledge and prophecy. So here we also have him using Nuni, and in a context, it's talking about now in this dispensation, this post-cross period. So we can um, state, I think, fairly uh, certainly that what he's talking about here is now in this new state, this post-cross period or dispensation or age, now in Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus is a technical term for the believer's position in Jesus Christ. So that is unique to the church age. Tribulation believers in the future will not be baptized by the Spirit. They're not going to be uh, placed in Christ, in the body of Christ. This is a distinctive term used only of the church, uh, universal church, believers in Jesus Christ in this age between the day of Pentecost in 33 and the uh, rapture of the church. So Paul says, now in Christ Jesus, you once or formerly who were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, before I go any further, I want to go back and just pick up on this issue of what happens uh, because of our position in Christ. 
two specific passages that talk about the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit also emphasize that as a result of the baptism by the Holy Spirit, this ethnic distinction that had been part of the Old Testament uh, uh, ritual was no longer in effect and was completely and is completely removed. First Corinthians twelve thirteen says, "For by one Spirit, written uh, reference to God the Holy Spirit, used uh, here in a passive voice uh, verb, we were all baptized, uh, indicating that He is the means of baptism." Uh, for by one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Notice, because this comes to play in the passage in Ephesians 2, talking about this new body, this new entity that came into existence on the day of Pentecost. And this is the church. And this is what's so important for us to understand is in this new body of Christ, there are new spiritual realities that involve not only our relationship to God, but also our relationship to one another, and specifically in the context of Ephesians, uh, the relationship between Jew and Gentile in Christ, that there it was no longer to be this distinction as had existed in the Old Testament. Remember, in the Old Testament, the only, uh, the only ones who could have any kind of close or direct access to God in the temple or previously in the tabernacle were male Jews. Gentiles could only get so far. You had to, the Gentiles had to stay uh, in the courtyard of the Gentiles in the temple. Uh, women could not uh, the, the, could not go into the uh, inner courtyard. They had to stay in the courtyard of the women, and they were kept distinct. Uh, and so they could not get as close to God in terms of worship. Uh, and if you were a slave. You were also restricted in your in your in your worship of God in the ritual of the worship of the tabernacle in the temple. So this passage is like First Corinthians twelve thirteen and Galatians three twenty six and following are not saying that ethnicity disappears. It's not saying that sexual distinctions disappear. He's not saying that people who are slaves are suddenly emancipated or that people who are uh, free are suddenly enslaved. There, there's no change in terms of your uh, natural physical status. You're still a slave. You're still a Gentile. You're still a woman. But in terms of your relationship to God, those distinctions no longer have a role uh, because of the work of Christ on the cross. And so we're all baptized into one body and equally members of that body uh, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we've all been made to drink, or that is to receive the, uh, one spirit. Paul expands on that in Galatians 3, 26 uh, to 29. He says, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. He's using a technical term for sons of God there. In contrast, earlier he'd been talking about uh, young children, uh, using an analogy with uh, young children in a Roman household were, were uh, governed by a tutor who uh, ba- basically uh, dominated their life tyrannically uh, until they reached the age of maturity when they became an adult son. 
And that would be a term that would not be sexist. It would be a term that would relate to someone who had reached maturity and would be treated as a, uh, a an adult with all of the rights and privileges that they would have within the family. So he equates every believer to the rights and privileges of an adult son within a Roman household. And we all become adult sons or have the, that full privileges uh, in in Christ as a result of faith in Christ. And he explains this then in Galatians 3.27 by saying, for as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Now, there's no mention of the Holy Spirit there. We just have a use of the same verb, baptize, but now we have the goal, which is Christ, that is the body of Christ. Uh, and, and he says, as many of you were uh, baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So putting on Christ is a positional term, just as being baptized into Christ is a positional term related to our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. And then Paul says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free, neither male nor female, uh, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now here we have three pairs and and there's three pairs of of, of uh, individuals that are contrasted: uh, Jew, Greek, slave, free, male, or female. Today you have people who come along, and you wonder how blind people are. They can't read the Bible. They say, "Well, see, this means that that um, in the body of Christ that uh, there are no uh, no sexual distinctions, and you can't say that that women can't be pastors." Well, then Paul must be the you know the the most uh, the, the largest idiot and inconsistent person in the world because that's exactly what he says over in First Timothy chapter two. He doesn't say that that these physical distinctions are eradicated in terms of function, but in terms of immediate access to God and spiritual privilege, in terms of that relationship with God, there are no distinctions anymore as you had in the Old Testament under the Mosaic Law. For now we are all one in Christ. And then note, note verse 29. Just I'm bringing this in because I want you to see how these main ideas always crop up together with Paul, and he is tying them together. We have the baptism uh, uh, by the Holy Spirit into Christ, the unity in this new oneness in the body of Christ. And then he says, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. See, we studied that in Romans chapter 4 uh, when we're talking about the, the, the true descendant of Abraham are not those who simply uh, follow him genetically, but follow him in terms of his faith in God. That's the true spiritual descendant of Abraham. And so that's what Paul says here. We are Abraham's descendant if we have faith in Christ following Abraham in terms of justification. And then he says, and heirs according to the promise. That was one of the main ideas that uh, Paul kept hitting on throughout chapter 4 is that if 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 the blessing is based on promise, then it's not based on works. It should be based on faith. Now, in verse 14, Paul goes on to say, Now there is peace. He himself, that is Jesus Christ, referencing back to uh, verse 13, the statement that we've been brought near by the blood of Christ, which is just a metaphor for the death of Christ. 
we've been brought near uh, to God by the death of Christ, and he is our peace. He emphasizes this with the repetition of the pronoun there, which is correctly translated, he himself is our peace, who's made both one. Now, who's he talking about here? Who are the both? Jew and Gentile. He's not talk, though ultimately there's a distinct, there's a barrier with, between man and God. Here he's talking about the barrier of the law between uh, Jew and Gentile. He says, he himself is our peace who has made both one. See, isn't that just exactly what was said over in uh, Galatians uh, 3.28? We're all one in Christ. So now he's talking about the fact that in Christ, this distinction between Jew and Gentile is destroyed. So to graph this out, we really have uh, two different areas in which there are there's a barrier. There's a barrier between Jew and Gentile, and then there's a barrier between Jews and Gentiles together and God. And that barrier is a state of hostility uh, or enmity uh, between uh, God and the human race on the one hand and between Gentiles and Jews on the other hand on the basis of the law. So that this becomes eradicated in verse 15 because... Uh, that it, because Christ abolished the enmity in his flesh. So the enmity that was existed between God and mankind and between Jew and Gentile is eradicated where? Not at the point of salvation, but at the cross historically. 33 AD, this is when that eradication takes place objectively before God. He abolishes in his flesh the enmity that is the law of of commandments contained in the ordinances. This is a reference to the Mosaic law. And he renders the Mosaic law inoperative. Uh, For example, Romans 10.4 states that Paul states that uh, Christ is the end of the law. So Jewish-Gentile hostility on the basis of those legal distinctions of the Mosaic law are uh, eradicated at the cross. Verse 15, he goes on to say, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, so that in Christ there's not a distinction, thus making peace. So the enmity here uh, starts off between, uh, between the two, but then it moves and starts making the shift uh, to solving the problem between God and man. That's verse 16, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, uh, thereby putting to death the enmity uh, that exists between Jew and Gentile and between Jews and Gentiles and God, so that as a result of the cross, enmity is replaced by peace. And the issue is now the cross. The issue isn't the law. The issue isn't culture. The issue isn't anything else. It's not sin. The issue is the cross. So that when we look at the uh, illustration of the barrier, uh, the left side represents the elements of sin that create a barrier between, uh, between man and God, starting at the bottom, the fact of sin, then the penalty of sin, and then the character of God in terms of his righteousness. And those three aspects of the sin problem are all solved 
by the universal uh, universal aspects of the cross. That is the unlimited part of unlimited atonement. Unlimited atonement, uh, the atonement is for all. So we're studying in Colossians on Sunday morning. This uh, he, he canceled the sin for all at the cross, uh, canceled the certificate of debt at the cross. The penalty of sin is paid for by uh, Christ in terms of redemption, and the character of God in terms of justice is satisfied by propitiation. Then the top three pro- uh, problems here, the lack of righteousness, our spiritual death and position in Adam are resolved only when we put our faith in Christ. And at that point, we receive the imputation of Christ's perfect righteousness. We're declared justified. We are born again spiritually, and we are placed into Christ. All of that happens simultaneously at the instant of faith in Christ. So then Paul goes on to say in verse 17, that he he came, then he that is uh, in reference that would go back to um, to Christ. He came and preached peace to you who were afar off. That would be Gentiles, and to those who were near, the Jews. They are near only because they have the privileges of the covenants, not because they are closer to salvation, as Paul uh, described in in. Um, in Romans, they have the the uh, at closer. They're closer to God in terms of the covenant, so they have blessings. But these do not include salvation. In verse eighteen, Paul says, "Through Him that is through Christ, we both Jew and Gentile have access by one Spirit to the Father." Now the results are then spread uh, spelled out in verses nineteen through twenty-two, and I just want to hit that pretty quickly. Now, therefore, you're no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens. See, before they were not citizens or members of the commonwealth of Israel, but now they're members of something new, fellow citizens of the household of God. And so uh, Jews and Gentiles are now uh, fellow citizens in this household of God, which is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Now that phrase does not refer to old, to Old Testament prophets. If it were if it were referring to Old Testament prophets, it would be in chronological order, built on the foundation of the prophets and then the apostles. These are the New Testament gifts of apostleship and prophets, and this was these were uh, temporary gifts given only during the period of the foundation of the church in the first century. Uh, Jesus Christ is the chief cornerstone. The foundation is the apostles and prophets who gave new revelation related to the mystery doctrine of the church age uh, during the uh, first century. Verse 21, in whom the whole building, so the imagery here is of the church as a building, being fitted together grows into what? A holy temple in the Lord. So that is in Christ. This is a spiritual temple. This isn't referring to the physical temple. And here it's a corporate temple. This isn't the individual temple within each believer. This is the corporate temple within the, of, of the body of Christ. Verse 22 says, In whom, that is the Lord, you are also being built together. Notice it's talking about the corporate body here 
as a dwelling place of God by means of the Holy Spirit. This is not talking about the indwelling of the Spirit here, but the dwelling of God in the body of Christ as a spiritual temple uh, to God. So this is all a result of the peace that occurs objectively at the cross. So when we go back to Ephesians, or excuse me, Romans 5, 1 and 2, we read that having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the uh, enmity that is removed. There is peace, with, and we learn from Ephesians, between Jew and Gentile in Christ, and there is peace uh, between mankind and God, and this is the basis for our access to, um, to God, which is in Christ. And then in verse 3, Paul's going to go on and show the uh, application of this or implication of this for, uh, for the church age. So I'm going to stop here. We'll come back, look at 5.2 next time, or 5.3 through 5, which really lays the foundation for the kind of mental attitude that believers need to have in order to make it uh, in the spiritual life. So we'll get to that next time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study these things this evening and we'll be challenged realizing that we have peace with you and on that position of strength then, then we have, um, we can have real unity, not a manufactured or artificial unity, but true genuine unity within the body of Christ. And on that basis of that peace that we have with you, then we can move forward in our spiritual life, even in the midst of living in a hostile world, even in the middle of the angelic conflict, no matter what opposition or difficulties we face, we know that we have, because we have peace with you and because we are being built together into this body, uh, this temple uh, in terms of worship for you, that we can have the strength we need to face and encounter any situation that we face in life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.